The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This week's episode of Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is brought to you by the Celebrant Foundation and Institute's new book, Life Cycle Ceremonies, a handbook for your whole life, which is now available on Amazon and Kindle. Make ceremonies matter more and become a certified Life Cycle Celebrant at celebrantinstitute.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. My guest today, Mathieu Ricard, is a molecular biologist, Tibetan Buddhist monk, humanitarian, and author of a number of books, including the just-released Altruism, The Power of Compassion to Change Yourself and the World. His article, adapted from that book, entitled The Evolution of Altruism, When We Ask If Animals Have Souls, We Forget That Being Humane Is Much Older Than Being Human is a featured article in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Mathieu Ricard, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thank you. So glad to speak with you. Well, it is absolutely an honor to talk to you directly. You are interviewed so often that I hesitate to ask you to recount stories you've told so many times before. Yet, even with a show as brief as ours, it would be helpful to our audience to hear a bit of your story. So let me start with this. You grew up in a largely secular home. Your dad, Jean-Francois, was a leading French intellectual. You turned to science and earned a doctorate in molecular biology, and then you shifted gears to become a Tibetan Buddhist monk. What were you looking for? What was driving you, do you think? Well, you know, as a teenager, you don't have much idea about happiness, altruism. You're just trying to discover what life is about. And, you know, basically, you know what you don't want, sort of a boring, meaningless life, but you don't know exactly where you want to go. So it was more at the stage of exploration that I was when I was 20. But when I saw a series of documentaries made for the French television by a friend of mine, Arnaud Desjardins, who uh, filmed for six months all the great Tibetan masters who had left Tibet following the communist invasion, I thought, oh, here are, you know, 20 Saint Francis of Assisi, 20 Socrates, whoever you might consider as a most inspiring figure in past history, but they were alive today. So that's why I decided to go and meet them. And that was, of course, the the best thing I did so far in my life. (laughs) And I went, when I was doing my PhD at Pasteur Institute for six years, every summer I would go there. And when I finished my PhD, I said, okay, my postdoc, I will do it in the Himalayas. Do you think you're looking for enlightenment? Does that play any role in your practice? Much more modest. (laughs) Much more modest. I was just uh, inspired by people, you know, were the living example of what they teach. It's mostly the quality of the presence. I was not asking uh, intellectual questions. You know, if you are in the presence of someone who, even though such simply sit there like a mountain of serenity, but just exude nothing but wisdom and compassion, 
then somehow you said there's something there that I need to explore further. It could become just a, even one thousandth of what those persons are. And it's quite different than admiring, you know, someone for his skill, like playing the piano or being a great mathematician or great artist or even a gardener or whatever. Because you find among those people the same distribution as in any other sort of group of people of wonderful warm-hearted people and not quite difficult ones. But with a spiritual master, you can't have a, a, a wonderful spiritual master who's grumpy all the time, and that doesn't work. <laughs> I had the opportunity to meet His Holiness the Dalai Lama a couple years ago. We were both teaching at a conference in uh, New Delhi. And yeah, I, I don't think grumpy is a word I would use for him, certainly. So let's turn our attention to your new book, Altruism. If I read you correctly, you say that altruism is an essential part of human nature. Yet, as I understand it, Buddhism denies any idea of essentiality. There's no true nature, only the continuing emptying of, of shunya. So help me understand how altruism and emptiness work together for you. Well, emptiness uh, doesn't mean the absence of qualities. But the Buddha nature, Tathagatagarbha, is filled with, imbued with, could say, perfection in the sense of perfect wisdom, infinite compassion, infinite love. And so when you speak of emptiness, it doesn't mean the absence of things like an empty pot. It means that anything you might think of, whether it's outer phenomena or the mind or even those qualities, they are not existing as entities imbued with intrinsic solid existence. That's what it means. It appears, yet it is void. But within what appears, there could be hate, there could be infinite love, there could be delusion, there could be wisdom. Neither of those is imbued with solid existence, but it nevertheless, there's a huge difference between an awakened mind and a mind that is deluded and sort of roams endlessly in suffering in samsara, that is the con existence conditioned by ignorance. So can you simply explain to me the difference between an awakened mind yeah. and one that's roaming so, in samsara? Uh, well, first of all, it begins with uh, you know a reification of reality. I mean, you suppose uh, if the ultimate nature of mind is this pure awareness sort of... Uh, non-dual self-illuminating sort of uh, awareness or awakening, then if you start to reify, that means you can start to split with the subject and object, and this, this gap becomes more and more solid to your perception. And then once you have that, you get attraction for what seems to be favorable to you, repulsion for what seems to be a threat, and those two impulses will soon grow, uh, or diversify, we could say, into what Buddhism called the five mental toxin, uh, because they are toxic to our happiness and that of others, of course, suffering, which are hatred, craving, uh, lack of discernment, uh, envy, arrogance, and uh, those are just five of the main mental toxins, so which leads to suffering. So in a way, this first ignorance which solidifies the notion of an individual self, which attribute permanence to impermanent phenomena, which believe that uh, either the self or any phenomena could exist on its own as a unitary, autonomous, permanent entity, all those distortions of reality, in the end, inevitably lead, lead to suffering. And by erasing those or freeing myself from those to whatever extent I can do that, compassion arises of itself. So, yes, when you are free from delusion, free from suffering, there's no any more sort of barriers between the notion of self and others, then what else but anything that comes to the mind, any any uh, word that comes to your mouth, any any 
action that comes out of that, it cannot, can be only beneficial. Because how could something malevolent come out of pure awareness? So let me ask you this. I know that you write about the distinction between sort of the evolutionary biologist's notion that uh, nature could or could not, depending on who you talk to, uh, select for altruism that you don't anchor altruism in Darwin's notion of natural selection. You anchor it in human intention, which I imagine uh, grows... Is that fair or am I wrong? Yes, it's a little bit... You know, let's precise it. Yes, First of all, altruism please. is an intention. It's sort of what we call psychological altruism because um, behavior, which what you will see from outside and what most evolutionists consider uh, because they don't look so much at intentions, uh, a behavior could be beneficial to someone who is related to you or someone who is not related to you. Beneficial in the sense that your action will bring some benefit to the other person. It might cost you something, it may not. But that benefit, if you speak for instance of human, could be motivated, say, by the, de the desire to please someone, seduce someone, flatter someone, and eventually, I don't know, cheat that person or get a, a inheritance, <laughs> something like that. So only looking at the, at the behavior some beneficial or some might be harmful, may not tell you about the intention. For instance, if, if a mother pushes her child violently out of the way, if you look just like the, at the behavior, it might seem harmful because the child will fall on the side of the road. But if she does that because doing so, she saved the child from being run over from a car, the intention, of course, was uh, altruistic. So now, when you come to evolution and uh, the difficulty that evolution had to explain altruism, Actually, Darwin was much more uh, close to uh, an understanding of altruism, even though he said this, this poses a challenge. Because he keeps on speaking about cooperation. There's even a beautiful quote that I have in the book saying that we could conceive to education, to extend benevolence, he called that sympathy, I think, to others than our, our kings. And even, he says, to extend it to other species as well. So it's quite remarkable and it's very much in contrast with the neo-Darwinism and even further social Darwinism, you know, the survival of the fittest, everyone for themselves, and or selfish genes, of course, how genes could be selfish, they are no more selfish than a packet of biscuits, you know, genes are, have no intention. So all these things I think now have changed. The most recent works in evolution uh, stress much more the, the value of cooperation throughout evolution to achieve, uh, you know, to, as being the architect of evolution in terms of getting increased degrees of complexity. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. And it seems that now evolution is where we want to go. So the evolution, again, I, I went through the book as, as I tried to understand it as best I could. Uh, the evolution can be assisted, it seems to me, by practice, cultivating compassion. Um, well, yes. yes. When you speak of change, say you want, we have the potential for altruism. We see that very well in children. They are more predisposed to like people, to appreciate people. Even it was shown with six months old. 
Uh, they, they prefer people who behave nicely to each other than people who sort of are nasty to each other. You do that with puppets and with all kinds of stratagems. So we have that disposition. But yet we can say, okay, that's fine. But you know, there's some progress to be made in the world regarding altruism. So how can we achieve that? There's two ways. First of all, of course, individuals have, have to change. We cannot just change institutions and sort of put a top-down, totalitarian way of saying, okay, now everyone has to be happy, everyone has to be altruistic. That's never going to work. So individuals have to change. And that's possible through mind training, to contemplation, to various spiritual techniques, or to just secular mind training. But then, even you have achieved that, you might say, well, so what? You know, a few people who do that, great. And that's nice they are among us in society, but that's not going to change the whole picture. But still, when those individuals, like-minded, say, altruistic people and cooperators, achieve a critical mass in society, now there's a phenomenon that, oh, this idea seems morally right. You know, I, I, would, I feel uncomfortable to say that we must be damn selfish. I don't care about anything. I don't care about poverty. I don't care about the environment. You can't say that anymore. So then there is a tipping point in, in the culture. And then you come to the evolution of culture, which concerns society. And those articulation of those two, individual change and cultural change, is really one of the things that I, I was most uh, enthusiastic to discover when doing the research uh, on the book, is the process of evolution of culture, which is Darwinian, but which goes much faster than genes. You, know, you could have evolution of culture within 10, 20 years, a generation And it's what we need now. So how do we do that? How do we, what's the practice uh, that, that you recommend? I mean, is it, are we talking about meta meditation, loving kindness meditation? Or is yes. it something? So, so tell us how that works, how people could practice that. Well, you know, it's not something so mysterious. I mean, who, I mean, of course, all of us uh, at, at some moment, and obviously more often than not, uh, felt uh, some unconditional love, where we call metta in, in Pali and metri in Sanskrit. That is, uh, well, you think of someone or you see someone like a young child and you feel unconditional love for that child. I mean, may that child be good, be safe, be healthy, uh, flourish in life, may he be spared, uh, you know, all kinds of suffering and obstacles. So then, but normally we do think that for a while when we see the child, for instance, but soon after, something else comes in mind or So we, we get up or somebody comes in the room or something happens, <laughs> telephone rings. So really that state of mind, which is very clear, sort of limpid, uh, fills our mental landscape, doesn't stay more than, say, a minute or so. So that's not the way to cultivate something. So instead of letting it come and go, we will nurture, we'll generate that state in our mind with the full quality, and then we'll nurture it for 5, 10, 20, half an hour, <laughs> you know, a few hours if you, if you like during the day and doing so you will change. And then the second step is to realize, oh, you know, I don't want to suffer. I don't want this child to suffer. But every sent, no, no, no sentient beings want to suffer. So if I value the happiness and the, the absence of suffering of this child, why should I not value that in other, other persons, other sentient beings? Even I don't know them, even they sometimes misbehave. Or even sentient beings like animals who also differentiate between pain and, and well-being. Why should I not be concerned by that? And then you extend that, be that benevolence to all. 
So let me try to get more specific. I understand what you're saying. I appreciate what you're saying. But I would like to leave our listeners with more direction. So let's say I've got 10 minutes or 20 minutes to do this loving kindness practice. Do you suggest sitting on a cushion, sitting in a chair? Is there specific, like in meta practice, there are sayings that you would say, you know, uh, wishing a certain person happiness and relief from suffering or something like that. Can you help us? If someone yes. wanted to start it this afternoon, what so would they do? The posture, you know, it doesn't really matter, except it should be a posture that is not too tense, not too relaxed. You know, if you lay down on the couch, you may, you may meditate, but you may also very soon fall asleep. So a sort of balanced posture. Usually we, in the Tibetan Buddhism, we keep our eye open because we don't want to sort of get rid of the phenomenal world. Why not? We want to engage with it without focusing on anything special. And then you just do that. You focus, you, well, phrases and sentences, sometimes we do recite them, even many times, like a hundred thousand times in Tibetan Buddhism. But what really matters is not the sentence that uh, matters. It's if you can just fill your mind with unconditional benevolence, you don't really need the sentence. It's kind of a helper, a reminder if needed. The main thing is once this is fully present in, a, in your mind, in a vivid way, is to nourish that. If it declines, it becomes a bit more dull, not so clear, like, you know, like murky water. You revive it. You make it very vivid, very clear, very present. And then if you are distracted, which is the other obstacle, your mind gets too agitated, you come back to it. You know, just a little bit like you see a butterfly is drinking the nectar of a flower and for some, no reason, sort of flies away and come back. So our mind has tendency to do that. So just come back to loving kindness, to meta meditation and nurture that again and again with discipline. So the only secret, I would say, is uh, to persevere. There's no other <laughs> trick or secret or, or advice. Persevere, persevere and that's how you change and that's how those who studied the effect of mind training in neuroscience have also shown that that's how your brain will change. So somehow, uh, you know, there's a trace of that uh, in your physiology as well. So, Matt, too, I sort of dragged you into all kinds of philosophical discussions. Let's talk about something more practical. You do a lot of humanitarian work. So why don't you tell us something about that? Yes, we have an organization. First, I wanted to call it uh, Compassion in Action when we started in France. And there, you know, they're very, very worried about religious matters. So they say, oh, it's too religious. So I call it Karuna, which means the same thing, because Karuna means compassion, but nobody knew about it. So anyway, for the last 15 years, we have accomplished many projects in Tibet, Nepal, India. Uh, we built uh, many schools and clinics and home for the elderly, bridges, and uh, just to give you a quick example, now we treat 120,000 patients a year in the various dispensary and clinic we have done. And recently, you know, there was uh, two major earthquakes. And even today, there's another earthquake that happened in Nepal, a smaller one, but still people now again sleep outside. Just the last news I got this morning, we were able to help 180,000 people in 450 villages. And meaning that for each of those 170,000 people, we bought food rations for at least 15 days, uh, medical help for those who needed, some shelter like tarpaulins for protect from the rain for those who needed. And then in, in the long term, we'll help them, them to rebuild their life and we will uh, have community projects like, such as rebuilding schools and so forth. So this is a wonderful undertaking. So of course, we will need help to continue that over you know, the coming years. And people can find out about that at your website? Absolutely. They go to karuna-sechen, s h 
ECHEN.org. And it's very simple. So when you are there and you can see, uh, you will always be able to see the latest news about the activities in Nepal as well as India and Tibet. Fantastic. Very important work. My guest today was Matthew Ricard. You can learn more about his work at matthewricard.org. Matthew Ricard, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. It was a great pleasure and honor to be with you. Thank you so much. This week's show was sponsored by the Celebrant Foundation and Institute. Learn how to create meaningful rituals for people of any faith and none and become a certified life cycle celebrant at celebrantinstitute.org. And check out the Foundation's new book, Life Cycle Ceremonies, a handbook for your whole life, now available at Amazon and Kindle. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats. And don't forget to download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Corinne Johnston, and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Mediumship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.